welcome, welcome. I am Richeline DeShields. My pronouns are she and hers. And I am the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion here at New York University Silver School of Social Work. I am so pleased to welcome you to the first of several spaces curated by my dear and esteemed colleague, Terrence Kofi. New York University is honored to be the first and to be with the distinction and honor to be able to house and hold space for the dynamic and prolific writer, James Baldwin, knowing that his words above all matters. The Silver School of Social Work is rooted in social justice, and we embed the values of social workers by honoring the dignity and worth of every person, and we offer care in the pursuit of the eradication of racism, sexism, homophobia, and all forms of oppression. And today we are happy to join forces in this most important and necessary work. I'm excited to introduce to you the curator of this wonderful series and this discussion today. Terrence Coffey, is a 2017 graduate of NYU, where he earned his bachelor's and master's degree in social work with a focus on criminal justice reform. As an advocate, activist, and educator, Terrence committed himself to creating social justice and political change with criminal justice system. Terrence is an adjunct professor at NYU Silver where he teaches forensic justice and problem solving courts and diversity, racism, oppression, and privilege. He is also the founder of Educate, Don't Incarcerate, a grassroots organization that raises awareness surrounding criminal and juvenile justice reform. Furthermore, he is the president and founder of the Social Justice Network an internet broadcast network that highlights the voice, voices, lives, and experiences of those with justice involvement. Through the work, he hosts his weekly talk show, It's Coffee Time, which airs on Spotify. During his tenure at NYU, Mr. Coffee interned with the prestigious McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and in 2016, he received both the NYU's President Service and the NYU Silver Excellence and Leadership Award for his development of College Pathways Program, which assists young men of color in obtaining educational opportunities. In 2017, he was named the NASW NYC Alex Rosen Student of the Year and once again received the NYU Silver Excellence and Leadership Award. Also in 2017, Terrence made his debut as a contributing author to race, education, and reintegrating formerly incarcerated citizens, published by Lexington Books. Terrence has appeared in numerous media outlets, including Yahoo News with Katie Couric and NY1 News in focus with Cheryl Willis, discussing topics related to criminal justice reform 
in America. He has published in the USA Today regarding reentry and voting rights for formerly incarcerated. Through his efforts, he's also gained the support of famed activist Michelle Alexander, author of the New York Times bestselling book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. And he is currently in the process of producing the documentary Cage Roses that focus on the juvenile justice system in America. I am so happy to introduce my friend, my colleague, Terrence Coffey. Thank you, Roshan, for that beautiful introduction. Sometimes I have to look at, you know, stop and wonder who they're talking about, but I'm very grateful to be here. Um, I would like to thank uh, Humanities of New York for hosting this event, as well as New York University Silver School of uh, Social Work and our sponsoring partners for their support of this reading and discussion. Um, as well, I wanna thank each of you for joining us this evening for the first uh, in a six part series of James Baldwin's Fire Next Time, the Revolution of the Social Justice Movement. Uh, this literary work first appeared in 1963, and the prophetic message of Mr. Baldwin, in my opinion, is just as relevant today as it was when it first appeared at the height of the civil rights movement here in America. Uh, this work was not only preparing the consciousness of future advocates in relations to social and racial justice in America, but America itself. It also answered definitively the issues of race relations that continue to exist today. But more definitively, I believe that Mr. Baldwin's uh, offers a complex yet simple analysis of how we, how we will solve the race issue of America. And as you may note from my subtitle, The Revolution of the Social Justice Movement, which I believe encapsulates the insights uh, as to the expansion of social uh, justice issues that range from uh, organizations such as the Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, and the work of the LGBT community, immigrant rights, um, and the list goes on. And all of which, in my opinion, again, is a continuation for the fight for equity and equality. The fire next time is an indication of a generation that will come that would be unapologetic and demanding uh, its place in American society. It is my hope that this evening uh, reading and discussion will spark in you not only conversation and engagement, but also to ensure each of us that our country is not lost to its, its current gender, ethnic, or racial polarization that is now taking place, uh, that idealism, pragmatism will infuse in this evening's conversation. Uh, tonight's readings will, let, will be led by Richland Dachau, Laura Morrison, Dr. Kirk J. James, and Sajal Mata. In closing, I would like to quote an excerpt from Mr. Baldwin's work about tonight's event, uh, as well as the crux of this entire series. If we, and now I mean the relatively conscious whites and the relatively conscious blacks who must like lovers insist on or create the consciousness 
of others do not falter in our duty now. We may be able, handful that we are, to end the racial nightmare and achieve our country and change the history of the world. And with that, we will now hear from Richland. Thank you so much, Terrence. Uh, my reading um, today is going to be taken um, from page um, 29 to 31, if you want to follow along with me. I hope that I do James Baldwin justice um, in the reading of his beautiful and prolific words. So here I go. Yet there was something deeper than these changes, these definable that frightened me. It was real in both the boys and the girls, but it was somehow more vivid in the boys. In the case of the girls, one watched them turning into matrons before they became women. They began to manifest a curious and really rather terrifying single-mindedness. It is hard to say exactly how this was conveyed. Something in the set of the lips, something far-seeing, seeing what? In the eyes, some new and crushing determination, the walk, something in the voice. They did not tease us, the boys, anymore. They reprimanded us sharply saying, you better be thinking about your soul. For the girls always saw the evidence on the avenue, knew what the price would be for them, a one mistake, knew that they had to be protected and that we were the only protection there was. They understood that they must act as God's decoy saving the souls of the boys for Jesus and binding the bodies of the boys in marriage. For this was the beginning of our burning time and it is better, said St. Paul, who elsewhere with the robust, unusual and stunning exactness described himself as a wretched man to marry than to burn. And I began to feel in the boys a curious, wary, bewildered despair, as though they were settling in for the long, hard winter of life. I did not know then what it was that I was reacting to. I put it in myself that they were letting themselves go. In the same way that girls were destined to gain much weight as their mothers, the boys, it was clear, would rise no higher than their fathers. School began to reveal itself. Therefore, as a child's game that one could not win, boys dropped out of school and went to work. My father wanted me to do the same. I refused, even though I no longer had any illusion about what an education could do for me. I had already encountered too many college grad handymen. My friends were now downtown, busy as they put it, fighting the man. They began to care less about the way they looked 
the way they dress, the things they did. Presently, one found them in twos, threes, or fours in the hallway, sharing a jug of wine or a bottle of whiskey, talking, cursing, fighting, sometimes weeping, lost and unable to say what it was that oppressed them, except that they knew it was the man, the white man. And they seem to be no way whatever to remove this cloud that stood between them and the sun, between them and love and life and power, between them and whatever it was they wanted. My reflection begins with the appearance of three words for me that were powerful in that, that reading in those words of James Baldwin. Soul, illusion, and sun. For me, the reflective piece talked to me about the intersectionality, which is a concept developed by Kimberly Crenshaw. She defines intersectionality as the relationship of power between people, ideologies, and institutions. Relationship of power between people, ideologies, and institutions. For me, Baldwin starts with an aware awareness that awakens him as he sees between Black girls and Black boys. He speaks of the curiosity and the single-mindedness and the terrifying for Black girls. And what resonated for me was this concept for Black girls and Black women as the sole protectors of Black boys and Black men. Baldwin provided me with the language that I understood and my own relationships with my own son that I continue with my own BIPOC students. The awareness is so evident in my role and so clear in my role as the diversity, equity, and inclusion educator. It is not found in my job description, but it is my lived experience, that intersectionality, which sets us on a course to see our roles and our purpose as the soul protectors, protectors of souls. What are we protecting them from? Again, Baldwin offers for us, it is oppression, right? It is this illusion then he goes into of education. I know for me, I had two dreams, one to own my own house and two to graduate from a university. Education was that point of access for me to be able to fulfill my dream. And without a doubt, my educational journey from Head Start, public schools, after schools, college pre-programs, and of course, without it, I would not be able to be here, financial support and the forms of scholarships and government programs. I discovered my passion, my purpose, which was derived directly from oppression the form of oppression in the form of access, the experience of not seeing and seeing fewer people who look like me on this journey, 
I experienced the illusion of education as what Baldwin described. It was not afforded to all education and it operated as a system of social reproduction, meaning the odds and the system was against me and my ability to move forward. The odds were against black boys even greater. And this is what Baldwin describes as a humiliation and danger that he experienced in the classroom and in educational systems that were those vehicles for social reproduction. Social reproduction conspired to crush, shatter, dismiss. And in the process, I would be broken, transformed, and made to feel small. My light would be dimmed, which brings me back to being a soul protector and how I, as a DEI educator, sacrifice myself standing in the gap to ensure access for BIPOC students and their effort to graduate from these universities protecting their souls by providing the warmth and the care that is absent and what De Baldwin depicts as this cloud between you and the sun. And in Baldwin's own words, he says, remove this cloud that stood between them and the sun, between them and love and life and power between them and whatever it was they wanted. That is my purpose and my role as the diversity, equity, and inclusion educator. Richland, thank you so much. Um, one of the things that I do in these spaces, uh, particularly as I teach my drop class is that engagement because the, the, the conversation, uh, Richland, as you were sharing, I, I promise you, is it, that, that, that identity in Black communities where we see the Black woman as the savior of our communities. The savior, even today, the savior of our Black souls when we think of uh, homes that are led by uh, the Black uh, mother in our country and the, the tears that we see in tragic situations of the, the black woman who continues to be the, the, the crux and the backbone of our communities. And it's just amazes me that this was in 1963 as Baldwin wrote this, but as we see, and we do look through the, the paradox of time to where we're at today in 2022, we see the stark realities of what those young girls saw from those young men in the uh uh with the with the jug of wine as they said because the jug of wine has been just to bring us all up to speed the jug of wine has been uh replaced by the blunt the hallways has been uh, uh, uh traded in for hanging out on the corners but the tragic outcome seemingly to be the same so I'm not sure if we have any questions in the chats or any comments on what Richland just shared, but um, again, 
this is why we created this space for us to be able to have these conversations. So are there any comments or reflections as to what Richland just shared that we can get from our audience here today? And I'll give it a minute. And um, I assume, um, raise, yes. You can raise your hands in the reaction if you would like to chime in uh, on this piece that was just read. Hoping I don't miss anyone in the audience as of yet. Uh, yes, Mr. Battle, Bate, I'm sorry about that. <clears throat> you can unmute. Devon, you can unmute. Hello, can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah, so I was having um problem with the technology. I apologize. Um, I've always been touched by James Baldwin. I'm not saying I'm no James Baldwin, but I wrote on similar topics. And I'm going through what I'm going through. And I was impressed by the way that she read what she read and it moved through me. Like it moved through my understanding of the past, the future, and what I'm going through as a contemporary male. And it's astounding how the things that he went through back then still affects me today. So much so that it moved me to tears. That's all I wanted to say. And I appreciate what she did. She did the um justice, the reading that her words became one in the melody as far as conveying what needed to be conveyed. And I just wanted to thank her and let her know why with tears was coming on my face. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Devon. Uh, I'd like to make a comment. Yes, please, N Nzinga. Please go yes. ahead. I'm, I'm driving so I can't be viewed. I'm doing this as I'm moving. But um, I just want to echo the same comments that were stated as to it amazes me how what James Baldwin spoke about then is so reflective in our society today. It, that's just always amazes me, but what it brings to mind for me is several things. One of being nature versus nurture. So I'm not sure if the gentleman then or the gentleman today, is it because they feel like it's just a natural process to do what they do and be where they are at the given time? Or is it because they have not been nurtured, right, from whoever is around them at the time to nurture them? And with respect to the, the women, how it's amazing that they just automatically assume the role that they are the caretakers of those young men. It's not a fixed factor. It's just, it's, I, I'm not sure if it's, again, the, the nature for them to do that, which I think is part of it, but the environment, I think um, the environment that they're in, forces almost, it's like it 
forces them to become the, the keepers of the soul for those young men. And again, just like the brother said, sister, you read it so powerful. I love James Baldwin I, 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 so much so that I wanted to read, I read it again to refresh my memory for this reading. So, and, and it's just, it's just awesome how the roles are still the same, how the women are still leading the charge and taking responsibility. And it's, it's, it's just amazing. And this is this, this, um, this chat, this, this discussion is, is awesome. And it's good that we have an opportunity for this platform to discuss Jane Baldwin, one of the greatest writers of all time. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nsinga. Um, and with that, I want to get ready to introduce our next reader. Um, one of the things as I have shared throughout my work um, within this uh, spectrum is the importance of we cannot, and I think Baldwin understood this, there's no way that we repair uh, the brokenness of our society and in the vein of race without us coming together. That, that just won't happen. And he clearly understood that. So with that, I will, will introduce our next reader, uh, Laura Morrison. Thank you so much, Terrence. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this important discussion. And I'm gonna be reading from pages 92 to 96 in the publicly available version of the book, if you wanna follow along. Now, it's extremely unlikely that Negroes will ever rise to power in the United States because they're only approximately a ninth of this nation. They're not in the position of the Africans who are attempting to reclaim their land and break the colonial yoke and recover from the colonial experience. The Negro situation is dangerous in a different way, both for the Negro qua Negro and for the country in which he forms so troubled and troubling apart. The American Negro is a unique creation. He has no counterpart anywhere and no predecessors. The Muslims react to this fact by referring to the Negro as the so-called American Negro and substituting for the names inherited from slavery, the letter X. It is a fact that every American Negro bears a name that originally belonged to the white man whose chattel he was. I am called Baldwin because I was either sold by my African tribe or kidnapped out of it into the hands of a white Christian named Baldwin who forced me to kneel at the foot of the cross. I am then both visibly and legally the descendants of slaves in a white Protestant country. And this is what it means to be an American Negro. This is who he is a kidnapped pagan who was sold like an animal and treated like one, who was once defined by the American constitution as three-fifths of a man, and who, according to the Dred Scott decision, had no rights that a white man was bound to respect. And today, a hundred years after his technical emancipation, he remains, with the possible exception of the American Indian, the most despised creature in his country. With now, there is simply no possibility of a real change in the Negro situation without the most radical and far-reaching changes in the American political and social structure. And it is clear that white Americans are not simply unwilling to affect these changes. 
they are in the main so slothful have they become, unable even to envision them. It must be added that the Negro himself no longer believes in the good faith of white Americans, if indeed he ever could have. What the Negro has discovered, and on an international level, is that power to intimidate, which he has always had privately, but hitherto could only manipulate privately, for private ends often, for limited ends always. And therefore, when the country speaks of a new Negro, which it has been doing every hour on the hour for decades, it is not really referring to a change in the Negro, which in any case, it is quite incapable of assessing, but only to a new difficulty in keeping him in his place, to the fact that it encounters him again, again, barring yet another door to its spiritual and social ease. This is probably, hard and odd as it may sound, the most important thing one human being can do for another. It is certainly one of the most important things, hence the torment and necessity of love. And this is the enormous contribution that the Negro has made to this otherwise shapeless and undiscovered country. Consequently, white Americans are in nothing more deluded than in supposing that Negroes could ever have imagined that white people would give them anything. It is rare indeed that people give. Most people guard and keep. They suppose it is they themselves and what they identify with themselves that they are guarding and keeping, whereas what they are actually guarding and keeping is their system of reality and what they assume themselves to be. One can give nothing whatever without giving oneself, that is to say, risking oneself. If one cannot risk oneself, then one is simply incapable of giving. And after all, one can give freedom only by setting someone free. This, in the case of the Negro, the American Republic has never become sufficiently mature to do. White Americans have contented themselves with gestures that are now described as tokenism. For hard example, white Americans congratulate themselves in the 1954 Supreme Court decision outlawing segregation in the schools. They suppose, in spite of the mountain of evidence that has since accumulated to the contrary, that this was proof of a change of heart, or as they like to say, progress. Perhaps. It all depends on how one reads the word progress. Most of the Negroes I know do not believe that this immense concession would ever have been made if it had not been for the competition of the Cold War and the fact that Africa was clearly liberating herself and therefore had, for political reasons, to be wooed by the descendants of her former masters. Had it been a matter of love or justice, the 1954 decision would surely have occurred sooner. Were it not for the realities of power in this difficult era, it might very well not have occurred yet. This seems an extremely harsh way of stating the case, ungrateful as it were, but the evidence that supports this way of stating it is not easily refuted. I myself did not think that it could be refuted at all. In any event, the sloppy and fatuous nature of American goodwill can never be relied upon to deal with hard problems. These have been dealt with, when they've been dealt with at all, out of necessity. And in political terms, anyway, necessity means concessions made in order to stay on top. I think this is a fact which it serves no purpose to deny. But whether it is a fact or not, this is what the Black population of the world, including Black Americans, really believe. The word independence in Africa and the word integration here are almost equally meaningless. That is, Europe has yet to leave Africa and Black men here are not yet free. And both of these last statements are undeniable facts, related facts, containing the gravest implications for us all. 
The Negroes of this country may never be able to rise to power, but they are very well placed indeed to precipitate chaos and ring down the curtain on the American dream. So um, my reflections. Uh, when The Fire Next Time was published in 1962, America was just years away from passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the Fair Housing Act of 1968. And yet, as significant as those laws were, nearly 60 years later, we can see their insufficiency in the country's persistent racial inequities in housing, health, wealth, education, incarceration, and on and on. Laws are certainly important, for example, given the evisceration of the Voting Rights Act by the Supreme Court in recent years, there's an urgent need for passage of the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. However, despite overwhelming support from Democrats at both houses of Congress, those bills languish in Washington because the US Senate is structured in such a way to give greater power to less populous states with predominantly white populations. And while it is certainly important to pass laws to expand voting rights, reform policing, equitably distribute resources, and much more, laws alone are not enough. It is still the case that it will take, as Baldwin wrote, the most radical and far-reaching changes in the American political and social structure to achieve equity for Black Americans. Since the brutal video-recorded police murder of George Floyd, coming after the murders of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, and so many others. More white Americans have woken up and heard the calls from black activists and intellectuals for reparations, prison abolition, and wholesale undoing of the laws, policies, and institutions that have perpetuated and continue to sustain racial inequity throughout this country. And while a growing number of white people might finally be able to envision such radical changes, we are far from affecting them. Even as more white people begin to muster the will, the movement for racial equity is facing a fierce backlash from the right, which is assailing critical race theory, warning of white replacement, and fanning the flames of culture wars to maintain their grip on power. As Baldwin wrote, it is rare indeed that people give. Most people guard and keep. He went on, what they're actually guarding and keeping is their system of reality and what they assume themselves to be. He continues, one can give nothing whatever without giving oneself, that is to say, risking oneself. This brings to mind education professor and author Dr. Bettina Love's explanation of the difference between allies and co-conspirators. To paraphrase Dr. Love, allies do the reading, know the language, come to the meetings, like I'm doing today, while co-conspirators put something on the line. They use their white privilege and take risks to advance Black, Indigenous, people of color, and otherwise uh, marginalized communities. I'm increasingly challenging myself to take such risks, to have uncomfortable conversations that may rupture relationships, to speak out against microaggressions and challenge racist actions and policies, even if doing so may hinder my own advancement, to show up at protests, to cede power to Black, Indigenous, and people of color, and to follow their lead. And I'm working with colleagues in Silver's faculty and staff white accountability group to keep my commitments front of mind as I seek to move, as Beverly De Daniel Tatum says, from a position of active or passive racism to one of active anti-racism. However, white Americans like me cannot congratulate ourselves for so-called progress at the individual or societal level. Baldwin wrote, the sloppy and fatuous nature of American goodwill can never be relied upon to deal with hard problems. These have been dealt with, when they've been dealt with at all, out of necessity, 
And in political terms anyway, necessity means concessions made in order to stay on top. Baldwin gave the example of the 1954 Supreme Court decision in Brown v. Board of Education, which he says most Black people rightly don't believe would ever have been made if America weren't trying to bring African countries to their side in the Cold War. That brings me back to our stalled voting rights legislation, Washington's inaction on police reform and equitable funding, and the rightful skepticism many Black Americans have today about promises white politicians make on the campaign trail. Baldwin concludes the section I just read, the Negroes of this country may never be able to rise to power, but they are very well placed indeed to precipitate chaos and ring down the curtain on the American dream. At the time, he was writing about the power of Black Americans to sway Africa to the Soviet side in the Cold War. Today, many think the preservation of American democracy itself is dependent on Black people overcoming ever-increasing structural barriers and voting in extraordinary numbers in support of a political party that has historically failed them. I don't discount the importance of the Black vote, but equally, if not more important to the radical and far-reaching political and social changes Baldwin called for are decentralized social justice movements like Black Lives Matter. This collective movement whose mission is to eradicate white supremacy and build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes. That is Baldwin's legacy. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I think that's what we do that thing there. <laughs> Let's do this, do this. So I would like to open up for any comments or reflections. Uh, on this, um, I see, and please feel free to raise your hand. Um, and if there you would like to say something in the chat, please do so. But I would love to hear uh, from our community. This is why this space was built for this community engagement. Uh, we have four minutes. Okay, we can take one and uh, that would be, if I get this wrong, please don't have me, Adia. Um, hi, yes, you go, no, you got it right. It's Adia and that's perfect. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for hosting this and creating this space. I think it's very much needed. We keep hearing about Mr. Baldwin's works, but we never really get to fully you know, receive it and understand and process what that means. And I think this is a beautiful space. Uh, something that stood out to me, I think it's actually later on in page 96. I don't know if we reached that part yet, but he said that um, he was talking about the word equality. And he said, identity is almost impossible to achieve because people are perpetually attempting to find feet on the shifting sands of status mm -hmm. and then called back to the history of labor in America. And I've been thinking about this a lot. If we are like trying to operate from a framework of finding equality, then we will never truly be able to achieve our individual unique creative identities because what exactly are we trying to be equal to? What equality has always been defined as us reaching this kind of, um, I mean, endpoint, which has for centuries been described by colonialism, by um, genocide by gentrification and, and all of these isms and evils. So thinking that we need to achieve something to reach this point that has been described from literally the system that created the harm is not really gonna help us get there. So I wonder if today when we're sitting here and talking about the word equity, 
what that truly means for us and how we can really achieve our own individual unique identities and systems that are still perpetuating the same cycle of labor where there's there are white people who are in positions of power and then black and brown people who are working under them and we see that everywhere even in social work in sports in media in business in tech so i think something i'm thinking about is that you know these are these are cycles we've been talking about and while we have achieved some form of you know equity in this ambiguous sense it still looks the same because when you look outside of yourselves and you look at who's really paying our bills, signing our checks, telling us what we are and not allowed to do, putting us in these boxes, right? How are we truly attaining our abundance and limitless freedom and creativity and identity that Mr. Baldwin is talking about? So those are just some of the thoughts I was having. Those were tremendous thoughts and I that just wonderful. I, I'm kind of tongue-tied because you really unpacked that and we had some questions. Uh, yes, beautifully said. Um, and there were some other questions. I think Minerva Pasquale said that you hit it right on the nail with that uh, analysis. So thank you. Um, I see we have Leslie Hand. I want to check. Leslie, give me one second. Um, Liz, do we have a space to answer uh, have Leslie speak, or do we need to move in the conscious of time? Okay. All right. So Leslie, I think we have a we we do have space, Leslie, if you can go ahead and interject, please. No, you need to unmute Leslie Toffler. Yes. yes. Go now, okay. It was a, uh, just a comment. Uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The similarities between the warnings that James Baldwin gave to his nephew um, are now very similar to what we read in Ta-Nehisi uh, Ta Coates' letter to his son in uh, Between the World um, and Me, uh, which is a sad, sad state of affairs, but uh, at least it was called attention to uh, more recently. Absolutely. I think uh, Takashi Costa has been referred to as the modern day James Baldwin, so to speak. So uh, with that, I want to thank everyone uh, for your comments in that session. And next we will be hearing from Dr. J. Kirk J. James. You know, peace. Um, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you, TC. Thank you, everyone, for organizing this. Um, as I was listening to everyone, I was so hyped. You know, like this is, you know, for you to show up on a Friday, you got to really love James Walwyn. <laughs> so, like, thank you all, man. This is dope. Uh, so, I read uh, my dungeon ship letter to my nephew. And as many of you, you know, really spoke about the issues that. James Baldwin writes about her things that feel very pertinent to this day. But uh, before I read what I want to read, and I would love to make this more of a conversation, I'm gonna to try to take up like five minutes as I feel like this is such a powerful piece. This whole piece is incredibly powerful and yet it was incredibly hard to find one piece to read 
but I think this one piece is going to have a lot of value. But I want to just kind of call attention. So even in the beginning of this essay, James Baldwin speaks to the tension. The tensions write this letter. And as a father, as a father to Black children, I and as someone who has a mother who has four Black boys who have been impacted by carceral systems, by mental health systems, I think about, you know, just really pausing and listen. He said, I begun this letter five times and I threw and, and I ripped it up five times. You know, so he's telling you the tension as as a parent, as an uncle, to communicate the truth of what America is to your child. So I just want us to all sit with that for real, right? Like what it must feel like to be a parent, not only then, but we know right now of a black boy, of a black girl, of a trans child, of someone that doesn't fit into the mold of what America says the mold is. And, you know, and I think he ends this, right? Just speaking to the beginning again, the beginning he speaks to the tension and he ends this by, by talking to the dissonance of America. He says, you know, we're celebrating this thing, you know, a hundred years too early and, and we're, we're still in the same place, right? Like, and there needs to be this truth, this truth telling which Baldwin alludes to throughout this entire piece. And again, this entire piece is incredibly good. Um, but I picked a short piece is what I want to do is I want to read it and I want to kind of just tell you a few things that came up for me and I would love to hear what came up for you. So the piece I'm reading begins on page 19 and I think it goes into page 20. And he begins by saying there's no reason for you to try to become like white people. And there is no basis whatever for their impertinent assumption that they must accept you. The really terrible thing, old buddy, is that you must accept them. And I mean that very seriously. You must accept them and accept them with love. For these innocent people have no other hope. They are, in effect, still trapped in a history which they do not understand. And until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. They have had to believe for many years and for innumerable reasons that black men are inferior to white men. Many of them indeed know better, but as you will discover, People find it very difficult to act on what they know. And to act is to be committed. And to be committed is to be in danger. In this case, the danger in the minds of most white Americans is the loss of their identity. And, you know, this piece brings up so many things for me. And I'm going to try to kind of keep it really simple so I can just hear what came up for you. But, you know, even the way he starts it out, it's like he just de declares equality. He declares wholeness, you know, like we're not looking for anyone to validate our humanity. And I think that is, you know, such a powerful affirmation for marginalized people. No one can validate your humanity. You are, you are whole, you're one, you're complete. And I think that declaration is so important to 
to even honor the truth that we've all internalized these systems. So to say that, you know what, I don't want this anymore. I'm not about that. You know, I'm whole and I'm good. And I think that is incredible powerful. There's something else here too, right? And I think about even, you know, speaking the truth of what these systems are and how they connect to like health again. And, you know, and, and for him to say this to his nephew is like for him to honor like that his nephew is gonna be gaslit by the system into internalizing his own experiences. So again, that truth again is incredibly powerful, but not only is he telling his nephew that truth, he's then asking his nephew to like honor that truth and then accept white people who he describes as lost and innocent. These are his terms throughout as lost and innocent accept them with love as he declares that it's the only hope. He says it's the only hope. So think of this tension. This is a tension I often feel in classes where students of color, I'm not here to help white people and move through their stuff, but here it is, Baldwin is saying exactly that. But he's not saying white people shouldn't be accountable to their shit, right? Which he says throughout it. But then he's, he's putting the onus on his nephew that irrespective to what they do to you, you have to show up with love because that's the only hope. And I think like the tension of that is incredibly powerful. Um, the last piece is, you know, again, the accountability to whites and, and again, considers the names, you know, even with Baldwin, the love, right? And what we would call trauma-informed and how he operates, but he acts as and demands accountability for whites but then even considers how hard it will be for them to act, how hard it will be for them to imagine an identity not rooted in white supremacy, identity not rooted in which you are the center of the universe. You know, so this is a critical analysis, even in the middle of harm and oppression that James Baldwin is capable of and his accent of us. And, you know, the collective, humanity in this piece, right? The idea that there is no freedom liberation unless there is collective freedom and liberation. And it speaks to, you know, Laura's piece around allyship versus conspiratorship, right? And seeing that like we're all in this together. And, and the idea of imagination, he's really, I think the thing that this piece leaves me with it's you know the idea of imagination. Can we imagine a new humanity? And he constantly acts of that a humanity you know not predicated on capitalist greed, a humanity not predicated on hierarchy, a humanity in which the ethos is love and everyone can self-actualize. So for me, like this piece is just incredible, powerful. Dr. J. Thank you. Uh, I, we already knew that, but anyway, I'll say that for later. Uh, please, um, as we are here, you've heard this, the reflection in, from this reading. Um, are there any thoughts or uh, identifying markers that stands out for you uh, that you would like to uh, um, reflect on? in regards to this particular reading. Yes, uh, Devon, we see you, go ahead. Um, 
I was just gonna say how the message that was conveyed in there was similar to a message that was conveyed in the album by Sean Carter, otherwise known as Jay-Z. And he was basically saying, despite the inequalities of the past, the future and the present, but especially the past, all the ills that you learned about the past or that you deal with contemporarily, you should never let it take you to a point where you become so bitter and lost that it prevents you from progressing in life and becoming a better person and adding a betterness into the environment in which we exist in. So that's what came to mind, how from generation to generation, people were still trying to spread the same message in same ways. And sometimes the people who are aware of what's going on see it, but even if they don't, the message is still being conveyed through mad platforms in this day and age. So it's still relevant. Yeah, and um, he says something, um, James Baldwin says something about um, white people being lost and innocent. And that's a comp, that's complicated, but um, mm. I don't disagree with that. It's complicated, I'm not gonna get into it right now, but I accept my brother and I understand that um, white supremacy is built on a bit uh, omission. And so when you live life from a perspective of omission, that means you're on, aware of certain things. And so you gotta love your brother regardless and want for him the same thing you want for yourself, understanding and awareness. And that's it. That's a lot when you say that's it, Devon, but thank you so much because that was a powerful take on that particular piece and it's really when I opened this up when I talked about the complexity yet the simplicity of it because in that piece what Baldwin has as Dr. Uh, uh, James has said he has actually took the crux of racism put it on the the, in, in the, the as the responsibility of the minority community to see this pop, to see our brother. And then and another thing I got, he referred to uh, our colleague, he referred to our, our as brothers and sisters. And then he said the most striking word, innocent. I mean, I like when Dr. James said, let's just ponder on that. But, and I would like to, you know, kind of do that when we, we, we think about the, the history of racism in America, when we think about the atrocities, when we think about the stuff, then Baldwin, a leading voice says, he refers to his, our brothers and sisters as innocent, Devon, the complexity. And I appreciate you, uh, Dr. J. Could I jump in one, yeah, do I have absolutely. like one minute? Yo, absolutely. thank you. So I, I love what Devon said and Addie, I love your question in chat. And I think, you know, he, he talks about, we never talk about like love as a tool of liberation. And here it's James Baldwin, always love. But it's not only a tool of liberation, right? It's a tool of survival. So he talks about, you know, how do you think we've survived 
like everything that we have survived. And he talks about like the importance of love and demonstrates it of how he took care of his of his brother and how his father, you know, so it's love is not only a tool of survival, but love is a tool of understanding. Love allows us to think critically, right? Love takes us away from, you know, putting people in boxes and using as Audrey Lord called, you know, the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. So it's like, you know, in this, and then even to your point, um, Devon, like, or Adia, love is, love is what allows us to then say, how are we going to all be accountable to this dismantling, right? Love is acting that intentionally versus like assuming that this person knows what they should do. And when they don't do it, I'm gonna show up and I'm gonna blast them because they ain't really, you know, about it versus like saying, what is our, love is honoring our ability to change and knowing that it's going to look different and co-creating the tools and the resources in, in, in the community to do that. You know, and we don't talk about enough at love as a tool, but I, I just feel like I wanted to leave it with that. Absolutely. Uh, we have our two minutes time, but Anne, we're going to go ahead and let you in now. Anne, please. Yes, um, I was just wondering, as I noticed, um, this is the first I read this of, of James Baldwin's work, so I really appreciate that you brought this to the forefront um, for me to be able to participate in. But um, I noticed, you know, he spoke of his spiritual journey, his Christian journey, and we're talking about love. And this almost a conundrum because you, you have the bitterness of, from the trauma. And then you tell, and then the abuser, the oppressor, you're saying to love them. And both sides don't know who they are. So both are mm -hmm. in an identity crisis. Um, but what I did realize as I went through the entire book was that although he denied Christianity, I feel that as you read his writings, there is one thing that he held on to that he learned there which was the professed love, he is asking us to actually be that love. So he extrapolated that and then tried to build that into, like you just said, I love that. Love is a tool of liberation, bringing us together, that humanity versus uh, race. And um, it's really something to think about because um, I, I want to just say this. I'm in the Bahamas. I'm not in America. I've not, I've only traveled to the United States. And I can say that we are a country that there are very few that would speak to white supremacy. I can tell you because of how I was conditioned and brought up, I was appalled of it because of religion. But when your eyes are open, and that comes through reading, through research, and, and I thank God, thank for the, I'm thankful for my spiritual journey that I don't have to go searching. It's like this, um, this, this series right now, this, this was, I can't even remember how I, this came into my email, but <laughs> that's, that's the universe putting it there because it knows my soul is searching. I'm willing to open to the knowledge that was hidden from me. And um, I'm, I'm embracing the level of oppression that we have in our country that is hidden. And I try to, I'm, I'm saying this, uh, Dr. J, because I sat on the other side of the table 
where I am a black woman, but a lot will consider me white. You know, that kind of colorism. And for me now to come forward and speak to this issue, but still extend the love, a lot of person can understand. But I have the understanding because I realize I was in an unconscious way complicit in, some, in my actions of not acknowledging. So I find that I'm more compassionate to those who haven't yet arrived to the table of understanding. And I hope that helps. I mean, that was important for me to say based on what you shared. And thank you so much. That was a very engaging segment as well as the entire session. And now we will be uh, moving on to our next uh, reader, uh, Sajal. Hi, everyone. I just want to do a quick sound check. Can you all hear me? Yes. Okay, awesome. I'm so, so, so excited to be here. And I personally can't think of a better way to spend my Friday night than to be in community with all of you. And as you were speaking, there were so many things that jumped into my mind, but I'm gonna get through this passage, which is on pages 103 to 107, if you wanna tag along with me. Um, and sort of like what Dr. J said, the theme of love really was something that drew me to this passage, along with so many of the other passages in this text. And so with that, I'll kick it off. Love takes off the masks that we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live within. I use the word love here, not merely in the personal sense, but as a state of being or a state of grace, not in the infantile American sense of being made happy, but in the tough and universal sense of quest and daring and growth. And I submit then that the racial tensions that menace Americans today have little to do with the real antipathy on the contrary, indeed, and are involved only symbolically with color. These tensions are rooted in the very same depths as those from which love springs or murder. The white man's unadmitted and apparently to him, unspeakable private fears and longings are projected onto the Negro. The only way he can be released from the Negro's tyrannical power over him is to consent, in effect, to become black himself, to become part of that suffering and dancing country that he now watches wistfully from the heights of his lonely power and armed with spiritual travelers checks visit surreptitiously after dark. How can one respect, let alone adopt the values of a people who do not on any level whatever, live the way they say they do or the way they say they should? I cannot accept the proposition that the 400 year travail of the American Negro should result merely in his attainment of the present level of the American civilization. I am far from convinced that being released from the African witch doctor was worthwhile if I am now, in order to support the moral contradictions and the spiritual oddity of my life, expected to become dependent on the American psychiatrist. It is a bargain I refuse. The only thing white people have that black people need or should want is power, and no one holds power forever. White people cannot, in the generality, be taken as models of how to live. Rather, the white man himself is in sore need of new standards, which will release him from his confusion and place him once again in fruitful communion with the depths of his own being. And I repeat, the price of liberation of the white people is the liberation of the blacks, the total liberation in the cities, in the towns, before the law, and in the mind. 
Why, for example, especially knowing the family as I do, I should want to marry your sister is a great mystery to me. But your sister and I have every right to marry if we wish to, and no one has the right to stop us. If she cannot raise me to her level, perhaps I can raise her to mine. In short, we, the black and the white, deeply need each other here if we are really to become a nation, if we really are, that is, to achieve our identity, our maturity as men and women. To create one nation has proved to be hideously a difficult task. There is certainly no need now to create two, one black and one white, but white men with far more political power than that possessed by the Nation of Islam movement have been advocating exactly this in effect for generations. In this sentiment, if this sentiment is honored when it falls from the lips of Senator Byrd, then there is no reason it should not be honored when it falls from the lips of Malcolm X. And any congressional committee wishing to investigate the latter must also be willing to investigate the former. They are expressing exactly the same sentiments and represent exactly the same danger. There is absolutely no reason to suppose that white people are better equipped to frame the laws by which I am to be governed than I am. It is entirely unacceptable that I should have no voice in the political affairs of my own country, for I am not a ward of America. I am one of the first Americans to arrive on these shores. This past, the Negroes past, of rope, fire, torture, castration, infanticide, rape, death and humiliation, fear by day and night, fear as deep as the marrow of bone, doubt that he was worthy of life since everyone around him denied it, sorrow for his women, for his kinfolk, for his children who needed his protection and whom he could not protect, rage, hatred and murder, hatred for white men so deep that it often turned against him and his own and made all love, all trust, all joy impossible. This past, this endless struggle to achieve and reveal and confirm a human identity, human authority, yet contains for all of its horror something very beautiful. I do not to me mean to be sentimental about suffering. Enough is certainly as good as a feast. But people who cannot suffer can never grow up, can never discover who they are. That man who is forced each day to snatch his manhood, his identity, out of fire of human cruelty that rages to destroy, it knows. If he survives his effort, and even if he does not survive it, something about himself and human life that no school on earth, and indeed no church, can teach. He achieves his own authority, and that is unshakable. This is because in order to save his life, he is forced to look beneath appearances, to take nothing for granted, to hear the meaning behind the words. If one is continually surviving the worst that life can bring, one eventually ceases to be controlled by a fear of what life can bring. Whatever it brings must be born. And at this level of experience, one's bitterness begins to be palatable and hatred becomes too heavy a sack to carry. The apprehension of life here so briefly and inadequately sketched has been the experience of generations of Negroes, and it helps to explain how they have endured and how they have been able to produce children of kindergarten age who can walk through mobs to get to school. It demands great force and great cunning continually to assault the mighty and indifferent force fortress of white supremacy, as Negroes in this country have done so long. It demands great spiritual resilience not to hate the hater whose foot is on your neck, 
and an even greater miracle of perception and charity not to teach your child to hate. The Negro boys and Negro girls who are facing mobs today come out of a long line of improbable aristocrats, the only genuine aristocrats this country has produced. I say this country because their frame of reference was totally American. They were hewing out of the mountain of white supremacy, the stone of their individuality. I have great respect for that unsung army of black men and women who trudged down back lanes and entered back doors saying, yes, sir, and no ma'am, in order to acquire a new roof for the schoolhouse, new books, a new chemistry lab, more beds for the dormitories and more dormitories. They did not like saying yes, sir, and no man, but the country was in no hurry to educate Negroes. These black men and women knew that the job had to be done and they put their pride in their pockets in order to do it. It is very hard to believe that they were many way inferior to the white men and women who opened those back doors. It is very hard to believe that those men and women raising their children, eating their greens, crying their curses, weeping their tears, singing their songs, making their love, as the sun rose, as the sun set, or in any way inferior to the white men and women who crept over to share these splendors after the sun went down. So I'm going to just pause here and take a breath. Um, something that I've learned from Dr. J's class is to just sort of sit in the discomfort and the feelings that arise. So I'm just gonna give us all a moment to do that. Now, one of the first things that jumped to my mind as I was reading this is a bell hooks quote where she says, love is profoundly political. Our deepest revolution will come when we understand this truth. Um, and so much of what I was hearing from our wonderful readers and from this community is that, and something that I've learned from Richeline's uh, course actually is that oftentimes in change, um, what people fear is not change, but they fear what they will lose. They fear the grief of what can be lost. And I believe that in this situation and in many situations when we speak about white supremacy um, and a culture that perpetuates white supremacy is that people are so scared to grieve the power. Um, when in reality, we know that one cannot be liberated unless we are all liberated. I also wanted to speak about how I think it was Anne who talked about, you know, us and the other, and how I, I heard Adia talk about the labels that we can often use. And I think language can be so empowering um, in so many ways. And I think that language can also be very imprisoning. And so I think that when we are thinking about language and labels, Oftentimes those, those labels that we use, that we're taught to use and the binaries that we're conditioned to think in um, can put us into boxes that don't honor the abundance of ourselves. Um, I also wanted to say that this passage reminded me of a story from Thich Nhat Hanh and I will briefly jump into it because I can, um, it's, it's, I'm gonna try to make this long story more succinct, but essentially, um, there's a passage from Thich Nhat Hanh's book where he talks about how he was at a, or he was at, basically there was a man living in a village and the man had left. And while he was gone, 
the village had burnt down and he believed that he lost his son who he loved so much in his house. And so he came back and he saw on the floor a corpse that resembled his son. And so he spent the rest of his years grieving um, and feeling so bitter and angry. And what happened was there was one day when someone knocked on his door and it turned out that his son survived the fire and was coming back. And so his son knocks on his door and says, dad, it's me. And when his father opens the door, he thinks that this boy who is his son is actually someone else who's mocking him, who thinks that his grief is funny and he refuses to believe that it's his son. And so the moral of the story is that sometimes we can hold on to our storylines and our truth so much that when the real truth comes and knocks on the doors, we're almost unable to let it in because we've clung to those truths for so long out of survival. And so something that I have been working on and in my personal journey of, of healing and liberation is the truths that I've been taught to hold on to that really no longer serve me, um, mm. which I think goes back to the truth about um, labels and language. And we can really get locked in there um, and without acknowledging the ways that that keeps us sort of confined, we don't realize the ways that we've, been, we've imprisoned ourselves um, because of that language and because of those narratives. So those were just some of the thoughts that were coming to my mind. And I really did want to open it up to hear from all of you because I am so inspired by this community. And thank you all for letting me be here. It is such an honor. Um, and I'd love to hear from all of you. Thank you. So Joel, we're now going to open um, now. We're now see we got some hands coming up. Um, Anne and then Laura, we'll hear from you. Uh, go ahead, Anne. <laughs> That was a hurrah. That was a uh, cheer. No, that was a hurrah. <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was powerful. <laughs> Laura? Can you unmute? Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Alice, can we un unmute Laura? Oh, okay. Don't know what's happening. So while we're working there, are there any more reflections on Sajal's? Uh, we have uh, Andrea and we have Nzinga. Andrea? <laughs> Andrea, can you unmute? This is something on my board. Okay, I see you there. Uh, can you unmute where you're at, Andrea? No? Okay. Ah. Good evening, everyone. Um, first of all, this um, is absolutely mm -hmm. fabulous. It's amazing. Yes. And especially to hear the different um, passages. My great grandmother, she was born in 1906 and she passed away in 1996. She was on this earth for 90 years. And she used to, she lost both sights in both of her eyes. 
then she used to make us read her James Baldwin and, you know, all the greats. Um, and this particular passage reminded me of her, especially with the no ma'am and the yes, you know, yes, sir, things that we had to say to them back then in order to get anything that we wanted. Um, so this is like a great session, but it's bringing up feelings that that is actually reminded me that I need to be letting my niece and my nephew know about James Baldwin. I don't think that they're learning about this, you know, in schools, but something my grandmother said, and I, I'll say this and then we can move on. She was like, at some point, compromise becomes surrender. And that's what we've always had to do. We've always had to compromise and surrender even when we didn't want to, because that's just the way America is made up. So, but that's all I, I really just want to, this is absolutely fabulous. You know, I look forward to future ones as well. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you so much. Uh, we're, we're a few minutes off, but Nzinga, please. So, so real quick, I just want to make a quick comment um, with respect to our truths. When, when, she, when the woman said that, I just, just what came to mind was that most of the truths that people project onto others are just that, are their truths it's not necessarily what is true. And I just think that is so powerful because we have these self-evident self truths that we hold dear to ourselves, but it's not necessarily what is actually true. Um, I wanted to make another comment, but I got caught up in how amazing this, this whole session is. <laughs> so, I'll just leave it at that, but it's really amazing. And I do hope we have more of these. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And thank you. Um, we're going to go into the last session, but Sajal, one thing I, I, I think that I do want to say uh, in regards to saying, you know, when we think of uh, our ancestors and we talk about saying the yes and yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, and go have and go through the back door in order to get ahead. I think that that is very relevant today when I, we hear about other issues when women, when we think about the Me Too woman and women who had to endure things in order to get ahead. When we hear about uh, Blacks in corporate America who had to, you know, take the, the jokes and whatever that was said in those spaces to get ahead. And we still hear that common theme today uh, as we have these conversations, again, this goes back to the relevance of uh, Baldwin's work, that we are not so far ahead uh, within ourselves as a country or a society that we have reached that plateau of being able to be ourselves in a space without having to seemingly at times, as we say, swallow our pride or compromise ourselves. And that's unfortunately another sad reality. Um, I am going to close. I'm going to try to do this in, a, in the best way I can with the time that's uh, allocated uh, in respect of time with my readings. 
Uh, and this is almost a follow-up from Dr. J. And uh, I don't want to kind of go too much into it because then it's like I'll keep talking about following. My, this reading begins on page 22. This innocent country set you down in the ghetto in which in fact it intended that you should perish. Let me spell out what precisely what I mean by that. For the heart of the matter is here and the root of my dispute with my country. You were born where you were born and faced the future that you faced because you were black or, uh, and, and or no other reason. The limits of your ambition were thus expected to be set forever. You were born in a society which spelled out with brutal clarity and in many ways as possible that you were a worthless human being. You were not expected to aspire to excellence. You were expected to make peace with mediocrity. Wherever you have turned, James, in your short time on this earth, you have been told where you could go and what you could do and how you could do it and where you could live and whom you could marry. I know your countrymen do not agree with me about this and I hear them saying, you exaggerate. They do not know Harlem and I, and I do, so do you. Take no one's word for anything, including mine, but trust your experience. Know whence you came. There's really no limit to where you can go. The details and symbols of your life have been deliberately constructed to make you believe that what white people say about you. Please try to remember that what they believe as well as what they do and cause you to endure does not testify to your inferiority, but to their inhumanity and fear. Please try to be clear, uh, tree, uh, please try to be clear, dear James. Though the storm which rages about your youthful head today, about the reality which lies behind the words, acceptance and integration, there is no reason for you to try to be or, uh, or come like white people and there is no there, there's no basis whatsoever for their imprudent assumptions that they must accept you. The real terrible thing, as Dr. J said, old buddy, is that you must accept them. And I mean that very seriously. You must accept them and accept them with love for these innocent people have no other hope. They are in effect still trapped in a history which they do not understand. And, and until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. They have had to believe for many years and for insurmountable reasons that black men are inferior to white men. Many of them indeed know better, but as you will discover, people find it very difficult to act on what they know. To act is to be committed and to be committed is to be in danger. In this case, the danger in the minds of, of, of most white Americans is the loss of their identity. Try to imagine how you would feel if you woke up one morning to find the sun shining and all the stars aflame. You would, you would be frightened because it is out of the order of nature. Any upheaval in the universe is terrifying because it, it, it is so profoundly attacks one's sense of one's own reality. Well, the black man has functioned in the white man's world as a fixed star, as an immovable pillar. And as he moves out of his place, heaven and earth are shaken to their foundations. 
you don't be afraid, I said. Um, I said it was with, it was intended that you should perish in the ghetto, perish by never being allowed to go behind the white man's definitions by never being allowed to spell your proper name. You have and many, uh, uh, you have and many of us have defeated this intention. And by a terrible law, a terrible paradox, these, those innocents who believe that your imprisonment made them safe are losing their grasp of reality. But these men are your brothers, your lost younger brothers. And if the word integration means anything, this is what it means, that we with love shall force our brothers to see themselves as they are, to cease fleeing from reality and, being, uh, and, be, and begin to change it. For this is your home, my friend. Do not be driven from it. Great men have done great things here and will, and will again. And we can make America what America must become. In respect to time, I want to read my last piece, and this is for everyone. <clears throat> when I began this series, I built it around the crux of this conversation. And I am delighted to see my white brothers and sisters on here. I am encouraged to see our family from the Bahamas and different nationalities engaging in this space, in this conversation. And I'll close by reading pages 112 to 113. And I mean this literally in the space that we're in here today as I read this. And here we are at the center of the art trapped in the gaudiest, most valuable, most improbable water wheel the world has ever seen. Everything now we must assume is in our hands. We have no right to assume otherwise. If we, and now I mean the relatively conscious whites and the relatively conscious blacks who must like lovers insist on or create the consciousness of the others, do not falter in our duty now we may be able, handful that we are, to end the racial nightmare and achieve our country and change the history of the world. If we do not dare everything, the fulfillment of that prophecy, recreated from the Bible in a song by a slave is upon us. God gave Noah a rainbow sign no more water, fire next time. I wanna thank each of you for joining us here tonight. Um, we wanna, I wanna thank each of you for engaging in this conversation. I wanna thank all of our readers. Um, I want to try to leave a little space with, it is 6.53 and we want to be respectful of time for any comments. Um, I would uh, elaborate, but I, I think one thing I do want to share with you, um, I first came across 
James Baldwin. This is the, the actual book, so I don't know if you guys can see it. Um, I don't think you can see it. That was given to me while I was in, uh, I think it was Gainesville Correctional Institution. I want to share with you that when I initially received this book, I only got this book because I, you know, they ran out of other books to read. So one of my cellmates, he said, well, he gave me something to read. So I just, you know, I'm just waiting on the next Dean Koontz or uh, I forgot my other author at that time. And I read this book and it took me approximately a month to get through it. And it wasn't because of nothing that I, what was going on, I was internalizing myself in the space of his readings. Because prior to that, in the first portion of Baldwin's book, I'd like to share with you, he says something that is a reality. He's speaking of his, his brother and he's telling his nephew, he said, uh, in essence, uh, he was defeated long before he died because at the bottom of his heart, he really believed what white people said about him. And he goes on to say, you can only be destroyed by believing that you really are what the white world calls a nigger. And I internalized that belief of what society said about me as an individual. That internalization of what Baldwin shared was my reality. As I sat in that cell and I read this book over the course of that month. A reality that's sometimes expressed when we hear, I'm a thug. That reality of what we see in the communities, uh, as one of our readers was describing, the young men on the corner, and the, that, that's that reality today. And this is why this portion was so, so meaningful to me. I've, I've read the whole book, but when I get to that part, it's... I have an opportunity to share with you how I understood the impact of societal influences, how that internalization of a belief in myself that I could only be, and how he spoke of uh, being placed in that ghetto for countless communities as we began to redefine who we are as a society. My hope lies in the my opening passage of the handful that we are, who like lovers must assist upon changing the course of the world. Um, I'll stop there again. I'm gonna, we have about three minutes, so I'm going to try to open this up uh, for um, two minutes, I assume, <laughs> for any comments, 
reflections on this evening and also to share with you there will be five okay i see it liz there will be five other series that you will be made uh, i will make sure that we're going to host we have one of our hosting members john mudd from midtown uh, community council on who will be hosting our next event uh as well as our friends over at strong youth uh gina dudley uh who will also be one of our sponsoring uh, organizations, as well as I'm not too sure if it's a member here uh, from the Exodus Transitional Community and Central Synagogue. So we'll be making all these dates and times available to you. Um, if there are any comments, um, please, I think we got one minute in, in respect of time. Anyone has anything they would like to share? Uh, I do. <laughs> Again. <laughs> uh, yes, um, it, it brought me to tears. It's powerful because um, there's a consciousness that I want to, to share that these oppressive um, actions towards us as a people so many of us have adopted them and used them on each other. And I, I've, I've been an educator for years. So I've taught in primary, high school and tertiary level. And I have a son who I had a conversation last night and this was the conversation we had because I, as a mother had to pour so much into him because within the school system, he was made to believe that he would not make it. And I can never forget a telephone call when he called me from the United States in Alabama to say, mommy, I'm not dumb. And as we talked last night of his journey, and I'm in tears because this is applicable because we're doing it to each other in different ways. And we have to be conscious of that. The same love, we have to, we have to translate this in so many dimensions, looking through so many prisms. Um, but, you know, he recently finished his second master's when he barely made it out of high school and um, is accepting a position at Howard University Hospital. And he is in reflection of his journey and the oppression. And um, it's sad when you realize because I may not have experienced some of the things that Ch uh, Baldwin spoke about, but as I heard my son talk, I heard that. I heard the, the, the various discriminations, the things that he went through, the struggle of his soul to believe he is a human being and he has the gifts that everybody else has. So, you know, I just wanted to bring us to that consciousness that this has to extend beyond just white and black. We need to think about even each other and what we're doing to each other and our children, because this is truly powerful. I have to read this again. And again and again. So I understand, Terrence, what you shared. Thank you. I really appreciate being with you from so far away and look forward to the next uh, reading. Yes, Blessings yes. to all. Devon, John, um, and Gina, I am so sorry. We're trying to stay in the frame, but Gina, you and I and John and all of us who are hands are raised, I will be uh, looking forward to you at our second reading. Um, I want to thank you for joining us. We want to thank you for uh, engaging with us in this reading and discussions, and we look forward to seeing you at the next one.
Thank you for joining us this evening.